Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, Scott Gardner and Michael Bailey now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now, back, back to the bins. Michael Bailey here, welcoming you to another episode of Back to the Bins. This week, well, honestly, this week is another offbeat and solo episode of the show. Uh, Life, as it has a habit of doing, has gotten in the way again, and because we're both absolutely swamped with real-world stuff... Scott hasn't been able to get to that episode we recorded about a week ago, and I haven't been able to go through the hours of audio we recorded during that awesome one-day con earlier in the month. So this week, like last week, one of us is coming to you all by his lonesome, just so that we can get something out there and hopefully entertain you. Uh, Last week, Scott brought you an awesome issue of Brave and the Bold, and I hope that some of you will forgive me... (laughs) for the book I chose to discuss this time out, because I had planned to pull this out just maybe to amuse and get a cheap laugh out of Scott, but I'll just do it by myself, because he probably has no no real desire to talk about it. So I've set the DeLorean time controls to summer 1991 and pulled X-Force number one out of the archives here at the Fortress. And I vividly remember when this book came out. I think it's safe to say that the early 90s were a huge time for the X-Books. After the successes of storylines like Fall of the Mutants and Inferno, the house that Chris Claremont built had ballooned to four titles. Uncanny X-Men, New Mutants, X-Factor, and Excalibur each had a corner of Marvel's mutant world all to their own. It was on New Mutants that a fresh-faced young kid named Rob Liefeld began to make a name for himself. Rob had made a bit of a splash on the Hawk and Dove miniseries over at DC in about 88 or so, but it was on New Mutants where his ascension to Superstar began, especially after he co-created the character of Cable with then-writer Louis Simonson. At least I think they co-created it together. I know he's always listed as creator, But if memory serves, uh, Louis Simonson was writing the book at the time. Anyways, after a crossover called The Extinction Agenda, with an X instead of an EX, the X-Books all got fresh starts. New Mutants ended with issue 100, only to be replaced by X-Force a month or so later. And to say that this book was popular is a gross understatement. People lost their fucking minds over all of the X-Books, and this one was no exception. 
it came polybagged with a trading card. And since non-sports trading cards were huge around this time, as were variant editions of comic book covers and such, each bag had a different card in it. So if you wanted all of the cards, you had to get additional copies of the books. That is, if you weren't the type to keep the book sealed in its non-acid-free bags. Actually, seriously, guys, if you have one of these still sealed in the bag, you might want to take it out now. It has been nearly 20 years, and the acid in the bag is eating the crap out of that book. Anyways, I wasn't the biggest of X fans at the time, uh, though those of my generation either got into comics... Uh, with the X-Books, or did one or two tours of duty with them. And while I mainly bought the Superman titles in 1991, I bought into the hype and got myself a copy of this book. X-Force number one has a cover date of August 1991. The credits are listed as the next generation of mutants... (laughs) It actually says that. I guess it should say mutant action... But it says, The Next Generation of Mutants Action, brought to you by Rob Liefeld, Everything But, Fabian Nicieza Words. And this was edited by Bob Harris, and this was the time when Tom... Tom... Tom DeFalco was the editor-in-chief. We open in Antarctica. June 4th, seven silent figures stand motionless, brooding alone with their thoughts and the weight of the road they have chosen to follow. Once they were children delighting in a dream, now they are soldiers fighting for the freedom of their kind. That's really dramatic. Anyways, X-Force stands above a base belonging to the Mutant Liberation Front, though I doubt that name would fly today, considering what MILF has come to be known as. Cable, leader of the team, calls his group into action, and we get a two-page spread of the group breaking into the facility and a reminder of who these characters are, which is Cannonball, Cable, Shatterstar, Boom Boom, Feral, and Warpath. God, this was the 90s! (laughs) They're even fighting like goons in green outfits with bizarre guns. Oh, man. There's feet, though, which should surprise some of you, because Rob Liefeld's not known for drawing the feet. There is some, as my friend Tom DJ would say, punchy, punchy run-run with the MLF's grunts until the A-list guys show up, and they are Forearm, Kamikaze, Wildside, and Reaper. Shatterstar takes on Reaper, and after some typical tough guy dialogue, cuts the villain's left hand clean off. Shatterstar nearly kills the guy, but chooses to temper his actions on this world. Forearm bear hugs Cable, and we get some more tough talk until Warpath comes up, and, and well, he, he punches Forearm, but despite Warpath's fist being down towards the ground, you know, like, like he punched in a downward motion, Forearm is flying backwards. It, it makes absolutely no sense. Going on, from an observation room that looks like Roy G. Biv to the interior decorating, Strife, leader of the Mutant Liberation Front, discusses the battle with Thumbelina, who is just one really ugly broad, before deciding to destroy the complex and escape, leaving his men behind. Meanwhile, Wildside and Feral fight, and I swear to God, Wildside looks like Wolverine had an illegitimate son that got into Mom's eye makeup. Seriously, if it wasn't for his messed up eyes and the fact that Feral is stacked like the Library of Congress, you probably couldn't tell these two apart. They both have the triangular sticking up hair. It looks 
god awful. This, I mean, you know, <laughs> my god. You know, I know that Rob Liefeld was a big fan of the Titans, and I th- and I know he was a big fan of Dave Cochran's art. But this is one of uh, Wildside is wearing one of the ugliest costumes known to man. So Farrell breaks Wildside's jaw and almost kills him before Cable and crew show up and tell her that that's a no-no, which kind of pisses her off. Suddenly, Zero, who is this large guy who has a, a who's wearing a mask? I think he's an android. I'm not quite sure, but he looks like he's wearing a mask that is completely blank except for a zero on his face and a zero on his chest. So it kind of looks like Doctor Manhattan, but white and no, you know, penis hanging down because that wouldn't have flown in this era of comics. And Zero teleports in and rescues Wildside, but before they can do anything about it, Strife shows up, and despite Cable's best efforts to kill the villain, he escapes again with the aid of Zero. Now, this kind of pisses me off, because Cable has just given Feral a hard time about the fact that she was going to kill Wildside, and, and, and Feral makes the point that, you know, I walk away today, and that's one more person who can nail me tomorrow, but as soon as Cable, you know, sees Strife, <laughs> his reaction is, you're dead, end of story. So, Cable is a big old hypocrite. So, as Cable stands there bitching about the fact that his mortal enemy escaped, Domino and Boom Boom show up just in time to take down Forearm, who was sneaking up on Cable. They escape, and we have some pretty god-awful dialogue before the scene switches to Manhattan, where Gideon and Sunspot are training in Gideon's penthouse apartment. Uh, I have no idea who Gideon is. I read two issues of X-Force, and uh, frankly, he just looks like another one of those mysterious badass-type characters. Sunspot was a a founding member of the New Mutants, and, and what I get from this scene is that while the rest of the New Mutants went with Cable, Sunspot decided to go his own way with Gideon and has been training for about six months with the man. The two talk about uh, Sunspot's progress in learning the business world, and Gideon feels that Sunspot is ready for the next step, and this is where I actually get a little sad or a little teary-eyed because the two leave to get ready for the Jankos stock buyout. And, well, that doesn't make me sad. I mean, it makes me kind of sad that the, the story kind of sucks, but the, the stock buyout is actually going to take place at 3 o'clock in the World Trade Center. And that, you know, that always gets to me now. It really does. It's, it's not that I think that, you know, these references should be removed from movies, but, you know, it, it's, it's almost 10 years, and, and that's still, like, very prevalent in the social consciousness. So it's just kind of weird. It, it, it took me out of the story for a few minutes simply because I was thinking about that day and everything that happened. But but to get back to the comic, Gideon smiles as, as Sunspot walks away to get ready, which sounds a lot creepier than it is, because he's just happy that his new student has progressed so well. But it does kind of look like Gideon is checking out Sunspot's ass. So back in Antarctica, S.H.I.E.L.D. investigates the smoking crater that used to be the MLF facility, and one of the grunts in white informs G.W. Bridge... Jesus Christ. Anyways, he informs GW Briz that this was indeed a mutant liberation base and shows him a bizarre bit of tech that confirms to Bridge that Cable was involved and that the time has come to bring Cable and his little army of toy soldiers down. 
Meanwhile, at X-Force HQ, which is kind of cool because it's actually one of Larry Trask's old Sentinel base, so there's a little bit of X-History mixed into there. Cannonball and Cable are having this big heart-to-heart where Cable explains why they didn't do more at the uh, Mutant Liberation Front installation, which boils down to Cable not wanting to jeopardize the lives of his unit any more than he has to. No talk about him being a big old hypocrite, but I guess, you know, I'll take what I can get. Then we get a little backstory on why Cable hates Strife so much, and apparently some of that comes from some dude named Tyler that was like a son to Cable. And Tyler, after drifting away from Cable years later, fell in with Strife and died in a terrorist operation, which, as Cable mentions, is one of the many reasons he hates Strife's guts. The two have a bonding moment before Domino comes in and busts on them before telling Cannibal that the others are waiting for him. As the two discuss Cannibal's curiosity, Cable uses some kind of telekinetic power to make his tools all floaty-floaty, which just freaks Domino out, as apparently the rest of the team doesn't know about the telekinetic abilities and the floaty-floaty tools, and this leads to more tough talk from Cable, you know, Domino going, if you want to be all dark and mysterious, you better be you better be ready to start, you know, singing like a canary, if they catch you doing like this, and, you know, <laughs> Cable goes, when it's, when it's time for them to learn, they'll learn. Fine, just don't expect them to jump through hoops without barking once in a while. Their bark is nothing compared to my bite. It's not Shakespeare, but, you know, what do you expect? So, at the World Trade Center, Ariana Jankos arrives to the buyout and is apparently pissed off about the whole thing because she brings in Black Tom Cassidy, who announces that he is holding the group hostage. Uh, Black Tom is an old-school X-Men villain. He is the brother to Banshee and, I guess, the uncle to Siren, uh, who shows up later in this series. Meanwhile, over the Laurenton Mountains in Canada, G.W. Bridge briefs Nick Fury, and Fury tells him to do whatever is necessary to bring Cable in. And on the final page, uh, Bridge stands in front of more of, you know, Roy G. Biv backgrounds and gives some cryptic dialogue before having the comm center patch him through to Department K, because it is time, apparently, to call in Weapon X. And after this, we, we get a few pages of character bios, which, which I actually thought was kind of cool, given the level of traction this book would have from new readers. It, it's nice that they were giving something to the no, to those new readers to kind of catch them up onto who these characters are, even though most of their history, you know, would begin with, nothing much is known about the background of Character X. Now, the easy thing for me to do here would be to start ragging on Rob Liefeld's art, but I really don't have it in me to do. There is a part of me that actually kind of digs Rob Liefeld's work, though I will admit this isn't his best effort. Sure, the art is dynamic and flashy. You know, the fight scenes are kind of cool if choreographed badly, but the artwork itself feels rushed, and frankly, Liefeld was not at a point in his career where he should have been inking himself. The main reason I can't rip this book to shreds is it isn't anything other than what it claims to be. This isn't a Dark Knight, or a Watchmen, or a Kingdom Come, or any other quote-unquote serious book. This is Michael Bay popcorn movie comics. 
There is barely a plot and chock full of mysteries and cryptic dialogue, but this isn't supposed to be high art. This is supposed to be entertainment for 11 to 20 year olds, and on that level, I think it actually succeeds. The book sold in huge numbers. This doesn't make it good by any stretch of the imagination, but it sure as hell makes it successful. And while I don't think it holds up in any way, shape, form, or fashion, I still get a bit of a kick out of it. I drag this era of X-Men out every once in a while to feel like a 15 to 16 year old again and remember what it was like, you know, just starting to go into high school because this was a time when, you know, I was going to the comic shop more regularly and X-Force and X-Men were the big books and the Superman books were kind of kicking ass and I was getting into trading cards and stuff. So it's not so much the story or the quality of this comic that makes me like it. It's just the reminder of the era that it represents that puts just a big old shit-eating grin on my face. <laughs> I mean, it's pure dumb fun. So I'm, I'm actually going to say this. If you haven't read it, or haven't read it in a while, and can stomach some terrible dialogue and art, track it down, because I guarantee you this bad boy is in a 50-minute cent box somewhere right now. So that is it for this week, another kind of shortish episode. Uh, Fingers crossed that the normal format returns next week. And until then, this is Michael Bailey, and I bid you good day. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of thecomicforums.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com and is a registered trademark of Demonzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com slash league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. They are the first and best team of mystery men ever to assemble for the cause of justice. The heroes that have been part of their ranks are legendary. They fight for America and for democracy, and yet no one has devoted a podcast to their exploits. Until now. Unfortunately, it's hosted by these guys. I don't care what Julia Schwartz says. Yeah, league sounds like a baseball team. I f- hate baseball. So there you go. Um, first F-bomb of the show. Um, How did you not... beat me to the first F-bomb of the show? Scott Gardner and Michael Bailey present Tales of the Justice Society of America. Fridays at 2TrueFreaks.Libson.com.